I'm continuing our series of messages in the Gospel of Matthew. We're into the greatest week. It's the way the winter Bible study author for the Lifeway Publishing Company has uh, titled the winter Bible study, talking about the Passion Week. That week when Jesus, in, in bringing his, his earthly ministry to a close, comes into the city of Jerusalem. A long-awaited moment. Jesus has been looking forward, not with anticipation, with, with pleasure, but knowing that this week would come and that that day would come when He would be taken to a cross. That hour would come when He would be hung on a cross. And that moment would come when He would die for the sins of all of the world, yours and mine included. And so in chapter 26 of Matthew's Gospel, we, we pick up there where we left off. You may recall that in the last message that I delivered, we focused on the Lord's Supper, that last Passover meal that Jesus observed with His disciples in a room, upper room that had been prepared there. And Jesus made it very clear that the elements that He was passing out in that uh, Lord's Supper, if you will, the bread, represented His broken body. Uh, which would be tortured for, for all mankind. The cup was highly symbolic of His shed blood, His sinless, perfect, atoning blood. As a precious, sacrificial Lamb of God, He would give His life to pay the price for the redemption of your sins and my sins. So that in doing so, He told His disciples, as often as you do this, an ordinance, a command, as often as you do this, do this and remember Me. Remember me. And so they finished the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. Judas had been sent on his way, having been occupied, if you will, by Satan. Jesus had dispatched him to go and do his own thing. And so, uh, anyway, he's on his way uh, to sell out the Lord and betray Him. And so now we're ready to look at this uh this time that Jesus and His disciples leave the upper room, they're on their way to the Mount of Olives. And so, let's pick up reading in chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26 and uh, verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. That would be namely James and John, fondly known as the sons of thunder. And this is the inner circle three, if you will. The, the closest of the disciples to Jesus that were with him at other times, such as the Mount of Transfiguration. So he takes Peter, James, and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, as not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to his disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Well, let's, if you were wanting to read the parallel accounts of this story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you could go to Mark's Gospel in chapter 14, 
And you could read Mark's version, his perspective, verses 32 through 51. You could go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 39 through 53. You would read Luke's perspective. And I encourage you to do that on your own. Take time and go and read these parallel Gospel uh, representations of the same account. Because each of them bring out different factors. And I'll, I'll try to touch on some of those. And then over in... John's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, you'll find the parallel there. But let me ask you this morning, do you have a favorite place when you're under a lot of pressure, when you're uh, being tempted and uh, you've got burdens on you? Is there a place that you like to go that you feel you're just close to the Lord? That you can just kind of tune out the rest of the world Get your mind off of your problems and just focus on the Lord. That may be a prayer closet for some of you. It may be a place at a park. It may be a place in your yard or sitting on the front porch. Wherever it may be. I oftentimes, when I have opportunity to go back up to visit with my father on the farm where I was born and raised until I went to go to college. I like going up there. It's probably one of the most rural spots in North Carolina. They don't have too many amenities up there. They do have electricity and telephone service. I, I, I kid because they've got satellite and all that now. But, but up there on the farm, you know, you're away from the hustle and bustle and the noise and the distractions of the city. In fact, I, I declare it's so quiet when I go down. My dad's property is bordered by a lake. And I go down there. I like to just go and, and, and sit on the shore of that lake. Or sometimes I'll get my canoe out when I'm feeling very Native American, you know, and get out there on the lake with my canoe and pretend that, you know, I'm one of those Indian braves getting ready to go bear hunting or something. But anyway, but, but out there on that lake, y'all are thinking, yeah, right, I can't see that. But uh, anyway, it's so quiet. And the beauty of God's handiwork around me. And it's so peaceful. And so some of the stressful times of my life, I've just made a point to go up there, even if it's just for the day, and go and just find my favorite spots and just be close to God. You, you need that. I believe that where Jesus is going here in this passage is one of His favorite spots. There in this garden called Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, it was a private garden, more than likely owned by some rich person who lived in Jerusalem that was a friend of Jesus that uh, allowed Jesus and His disciples to utilize the garden on occasions. And, and I believe it was one of Jesus' favorite places to go when He was in the vicinity of Jerusalem because it was away from the hustle and bustle of the city and the, and the rag and tag and, and, the, and the pressures of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of His adversaries. And so... As, as we look at Jesus facing what I believe was the Lord's greatest trial. Now, this is not to be confused with the trial that He will subsequently face before Pilate and Herod and that type of thing. This is, I'm talking about His own personal trial. This, I believe, was the greatest trial that the Lord faced and it was right here in this garden called Gethsemane. And it's interesting, as you look at the name Gethsemane in its original language, it meant the olive press. And I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of those ancient olive presses where they, in the midst of an olive grove, they would have a, a flat to horizontal millstone but then they would have a perpendicular millstone, massive, heavy piece of stone that was usually moved by a yoke with an oxen that would pull it and they would put the olives underneath and it would crush the olives. 
So, it, you know, the, the visual imagery here is in this garden, there, this massive stone would crush and squeeze the olives to get the oil from that. And I believe that you see a picture of Jesus there enduring crush, the crushing weight of temptation, crushing weight of revelation, knowing what he faced as he moved further in following the will of God. And so as we go back and look at these passages here, Jesus is going in, he's going into the garden. He leaves the eight disciples there at the, at the primary gate. They're primarily there just to guard the gate. To just make sure that Jesus is not disturbed. But when Jesus takes Peter and James and John and goes further into the garden and, and, and he shares with them, listen, look at the words of verse 38. He says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, greatly distressed. In other words, literally, it means to be in agony. And Jesus is sharing with his disciples the crushing weight of, of, of what he's about to do. And he tells his disciples there that it's even to death. The Lord feels this great emotional struggle going on within him. And so as we look at the nature of his trial, they are described in verse 38. I want us to see some things that when Jesus said that, that he is in distress, uh, nearly to death or even to death, he's saying that he's in, in great agony, crushed with anguish, if you will. In Luke's Gospel in chapter 22, if you read that parallel, when Jesus is, is praying there, and, and, and we see Him as He goes further in verse 39, it says He went a little further, and He fell not, not on His knees, not on His hands, but it says He fell on His face. I believe every ounce of physical energy is being sapped from our Lord under the emotional, spiritual weight of what He's encountering there in that garden and Luke's Gospel tells us that the Lord, as He was struggling in prayer and being in great agony, Luke says, and being in great agony, His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And some commentaries attribute this to a rare medical condition called hematidrosis in which a person, if they're under tremendous emotional and physical stress, it begins to affect them Physically, where the capillaries near the surface of the skin, under the, just the sheer stress and the pressure that they're under, the capillaries begin to rupture. And the blood begins to infiltrate even the sweat glands. So that when a person is, is under such a condition and they're sweating, that indeed they're sweating not only sweat, but drops of blood as well. This, this describes the inner struggle that's going on within the Lord. And that's related to the bitterness of the cup that he's about to take when he says, Oh, my Father, the Son, talking directly to God the Father. Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup, and the cup is described as an instrument of, of judgment, if you will. And Jesus is saying, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus understood clearly that as God's Son, as the sacrificial Lamb of God, as the blessed Messiah, that He had a date with a cross where He would give His life. And I don't think Jesus was fretting over the physical agonies of the cross, though certainly it is a tormenting and a torturous death. That's, that's not the weight 
That's not the torment that Jesus is experiencing here. Jesus understands clearly that this cup that he is going to have to drink of represents the wrath of Almighty God. That is was designed for you and for me. Jesus had no sin. He didn't have to suffer for his own sins. But he understood as a blessed Savior, he would have to give his life on the cross. And in doing so, he would have to endure the wrath of God. And not only that, not just the, the wrath of God poured down upon him of all the sins of all mankind from all the ages. But it was the subsequent estrangement from God the Father. For the first time in all of eternity, he would have to experience something he'd never experienced, something that in his own holy, divine nature was absolutely repulsive to him. A holy, divine being having sin thrust upon him. Not only sin, but the consequences of sin, which was separation from God. For the first time, the Son would be separated from His Father. And this was... Weighing tremendously upon him that night as he fell on his face and as he was praying. But folks, there's yet another element that made this time in the garden as Jesus was flat on his face praying to the Father in great anguish, crushed with anguish. There was another element that aggravated the situation. Not only was he enduring this internal strife going on within him, but also, let's not discount the presence and the effect of the adversary that night too. Satan is not going to miss an opportunity to thwart the plans of God. We, we saw that as we began the series of messages in Matthew all the way back in chapter 4. You remember? After Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit at the initiation or inauguration of His ministry. Do you remember? He was sent, led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness. Where he fasted for 40 days and nights. And who came along? One gospel version says Satan showed up after the fast. Another gospel version says, oh no, Satan was there the whole time. He wasn't going to miss out on an opportunity. So he was there and he was taunting the Lord, tempting the Lord, trying to discourage Jesus from even embarking upon this mission that God the Father had sent him. Now, if you hold your place there, I think it's just interesting because I say both of the gospels give different versions or perspectives. They're, they're very true. But just from two different perspectives. But I noticed that in Luke's Gospel in chapter 4, talking about the initial temptation when, when Jesus was first tempted. After the temptations, if you will, in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, I want you to note something. This is not picked up on in the other Gospels, but I think it's worth noting. At the end of the temptation, it says, this, this initial temptation out in the wilderness... It says, now when the devil had ended every temptation, and I might add, failed, he departed from him until an opportune time. Folks, don't get the, the, the idea that just because Satan didn't win in the wilderness, that he just said, I can't, that's, it's, it's hopeless. I can't, I can't do this. I might as well leave him alone. Oh no. Luke says, Satan departed from him until an opportune time. Were there other opportunities? You better believe there were. I believe all along Jesus' earthly ministry when He encountered demons occupying individuals and, and, and causing them to suffer, I believe that was Satan just saying, there you go Jesus, I'm still here. Trying Him and testing Him. 
We know that as we saw in the Gospel of Matthew, that in chapter 16, in verse 23, after Jesus had told Peter uh, in his profession of faith that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, you know, blessed are you, Satan, uh, uh, Satan Simon. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For upon this rock of faith I will build my church and the, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then soon after that, Jesus tells His disciples, now I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. And Peter comes along and says, Oh no, Lord, no way. That, that cannot, that will not happen. And you remember what Jesus said when he turned to Simon? He said, Get behind me, Satan. He was looking at Peter, but he was looking beyond Peter. He knew exactly where that came from. He knew exactly who was trying to discourage him from fulfilling his messianic role. It was Satan manipulating even his disciple. Oh, listen, that was an opportune time, but that wasn't the only one. I believe that when Jesus came into Jerusalem and He was encountered by the, the, the wicked Pharisees and, and, and Sadducees, the whole uh, corrupt religious structure, if you will, I believe Satan was behind them. I believe He manipulated them to test Jesus, to try Him, to try to trap Him. And then last week, as we looked at Jesus and the disciples in the Lord, Lord's Supper, in that last observance of the Passover, we know that Satan showed up again. In fact, we, in John's Gospel, in chapter 13, John helps us to see where Satan was working in, 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 in the situation. In John chapter 13, verse 27. It says, now, this is at the Lord's Supper from John's perspective. And of course, Jesus has already announced to His disciples that one of His own disciples is going to betray Him. And they're saying, is it me? Who is it? Is it me? And Jesus, it says in verse 26, it says, it is He whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, He gave it to Judas Iscariot. The son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Talking about Judas. And then Jesus said to him, speaking to Judas, but looking beyond Judas, and seeing the sinister Satan in the background, I believe Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. Satan, I know what you're up to. I know where you're headed. I know your devices. Go ahead. Just do it. Just get it over with. And so you see, Satan didn't miss an opportunity. Now, I don't know about you. When you, if you, how many of you saw the movie by Mel Gibson, The Passion? I mean, it was a very graphic movie, but very realistic in the depiction of what our Lord encountered. But it opens with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It opens with our Lord alone in that garden and a moonlit setting. And, and sure enough, Gibson depicted the presence of Satan there, this slithering, wicked, sinister creature that was there just kind of hovering around the Lord. I think it was interesting that in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted three times by Satan in all different ways. And you'll notice in the scriptural account in Matthew that Jesus went back before the Father and prayed. Three times. 
I believe every time that, that, that Satan began to bear down on him, I believe Satan was whispering in his ear, Jesus, you know what's ahead for you? Jesus, you don't have to do this. Jesus, just look around, even at your own disciples. Look, you can't trust them. They don't love you. Listen, you're wasting your time. You don't want to die on a cross. You're too good to die on a cross. You don't want to have to suffer the anguish of being separated from your father. Oh, Jesus, look, you can walk out on this thing right now. And Jesus repeatedly went before the Father. I don't think Jesus was trying to look for, to get out of his foreordained role. I think Jesus knew very well from the, I know he did, from the very beginning of time. Jesus is omniscient, just like God the Father is omniscient. Jesus knew from the very beginning of the dawn of history that he would come into the world as a human being. He would live his life in ministry before mankind and on, at the appointed time, just as he and the Father and the Spirit had agreed, he would give his life on the cross. Jesus wasn't trying to avoid the cross. He was simply asking God the Father, if there is, by chance, any other way that I can accomplish your will, if I can carry out this plan in if there any other way, this is the humanity of Christ up against His divinity. The struggle that was going on and He was saying, Father, if there's any other way, if there's a plan B, and yet He says, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was always submitted to the will of God the Father. And that's the outcome of His trial. God's perfect Son remained faithful. All through His ministry, what did Jesus say? I am here not to do my will, but to do the will of the One who sent me. He told His disciples there in Samaria when He met with the woman at the well and, and they had gone to get food and He came back and, and, and he, he said, I already have my food. And they said, well, we don't see anything. He says, my food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. Jesus was absolutely dedicated to the perfect, sovereign will of God the Father. And after the third time coming before His disciples, Jesus was absolutely committed to go on with the, the plan, just as He and the Father had prescribed. That was His resolution. What about yours and what about mine? How resolute are you to carry out the will of God in your life in the face of trials, in the face of temptation? What, what would it take for you, knowing that God's will might call upon you to sacrifice something, or someone, or a relationship. Who would it call, call, or what would be called upon for you to be able to say, I can't do this. I don't want to make this sacrifice. Even though I know in my heart, based on the Word of God and, and from the prompting of the Holy Spirit, this is what I need to do. I don't want to do it. How resolute are you to do God's will in your life no matter what? Would you be as faithful? Or could you say, Lord, Father, not your will, but my will, not, not my will, but your will be done. Even, Lord, if it means getting 
giving up a promotion on the job, or, or missing out on a raise, or maybe not making the, the school team, or not being the most popular student, or not having the nicest home, or not having the, the, the nicest car. If, if it requires that, can you say, Lord, Father, not my will, but Your will be done. I believe Jesus is giving us an example here. I think He wants us to see how important it is that we resolve in our minds even before the storms and the trials and the temptations come. You need to know that in your heart of hearts that nothing will interfere with you being what God has called you to be and do what God has called you to do. In contrast to the Lord's greatest trial, and as I said, Jesus fulfilled His plan. If the plan stayed intact. When Jesus walked out of that garden or from that spot where He was praying, John 3.16 was still in place. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Nothing had been tampered with there. But in contrast to Jesus' greatest trial, I thought it was interesting to watch the disciples. Because in the same scenario, we see it was the disciples' weakest moment. You know, when Jesus tells His disciples as He's going into the garden, and going, particularly when He talks to Peter, James, and, and John, and, and He says, you know, my soul is exceedingly, there in verse 38, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with Me. Stay here and watch with Me. And then, of course, when He came back in verse 40, He came to His disciples and found them asleep. And he said to Peter, What could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. We know that because Jesus had already told his disciples just prior to this, he says, Listen, you're going to desert me. He said, quoting out of Zechariah, he said, When the when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. He says, You guys are going to desert me this day. And you remember, oh no, no, Lord, we're with you. We'll never leave you. And Peter especially. Lord, even if everybody else leaves, you count on the rock. I'll be here. And do you remember what Jesus told Peter? Simon, before the rooster crows three times, before the rooster crows today, you will have denied me three times. That's what Jesus was saying. He was telling Peter. He says, you know, the, the flesh is weak. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And it says, we watch the disciples, and I want you to learn something out of this because I believe Peter learned something from this. I don't believe that Jesus was asking His disciples to come with Him so far and then to stay awake for Him so that He would have company. I don't think... Jesus was asking them to stay awake so that they could be His cheerleaders and, 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 and root Him on. I don't think Jesus was asking them to be watchful and to stay awake for moral support. I believe that Jesus was telling His disciples to stay awake for their own benefit. He knew what He was up against. He knew what He was about to do. And He wanted to teach His disciples how do you deal with fiery trials? 
When the weight of the world and sin is crushing down upon you, what do you do? What do you do? You know, I've heard teachers say, sometimes it's good for students to learn through hearing, sometimes, you know, reading and that type of thing, but the best way for many students is to let them see it actually happening experientially, hands-on. And Jesus, I believe, is teaching one of the greatest lessons in life for His disciples, or He wants to anyway. How do I know Peter took note of that? Because later, Peter would write a letter. One of his epistles to the church, the early church. And in chapter 1 of verse 16 of 1 Peter, Peter would talk to them about being Faithful, standing strong, leaning on God in those various trials that you go through. How did Peter know that? Because he watched the Savior. Or until he fell asleep. How do I know that Peter learned something from that lesson? Because later in that same letter, in chapter 5, verse 8, Peter would tell the early Christians, he said, you be vigilant. You be sober. You be on the alert. Always stay on the alert. Because your adversary, the devil, like a lion, a roaring lion, prowls around, seeking whom he may devour. He says, don't drop me guard. And how many of us as Christians are guilty of dropping our guard and not being vigilant? Listen, that's what, that was the weakness of the disciples. They lacked in vigilance. They yielded to physical needs and, and desires. They were, in all fairness to disciples, I mean, this is Thursday night before Jesus is to die on the cross. They've had a, an eventful, stressful day and it's midnight. I noticed something, you know, that as I get more mature, I, mean, I used to pride myself that I could stay up till late at night, you know, reading and studying and get up at five o'clock, you know, and just be going with energy and zeal and everything and then as I add a few birthdays to that you know I noticed that you know my bedtime starting to get a little earlier a little early. I'm missing out on a lot of television pro- not that I really watch television but I miss out on a lot of reading and things that I would do it just seems like you know and I used to make fun of my grandpa because he would sit there and watch the six o'clock news and he only had two stations on his television. He'd sit right up there and watch Walter Cronkite do the six o'clock news. And those of you that were old enough to remember Walter Cronkite would end his program and say, that's the news. Good night. And my granddad would say, good night, Walter. Turn off the TV and go to bed. <laughs> I used to think... Granddad, you're missing out, man. Hey, listen. Now, I'm going to bed earlier. So if you call my house after 9 o'clock, you may get a recording. If it's an emergency, call back, okay? But but I'm going to tell you, I, I, can, I can identify. Have you ever been just so tired? You want to stay awake, but your body's just saying, Rock-a-bye, baby. <laughs> you know? And, and that's what I believe that was part. The physical fatigue, the emotional fatigue wearing on the disciples. Let's not be too hard on those guys. Because they're there and they're falling asleep. You know, Luke gives us a little bit of insight in chapter 22, verse 45. He says they were falling asleep with sorrow. Jesus had been telling them repeatedly, I'm going to die. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be, I'm going to be crucified. He's telling them. He's warning. They're hearing this. He, they see the opposition building against the Lord. The luster of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem where everybody was saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. You know, now 
There's not that support anymore. They're starting to get worried. And I believe, Luke says, because of the, the stress of emotion, sorrow, they, they were also lulled to sleep. They lacked in vigilance to be able to, to overcome that desire to, to, to yield to the flesh. They were overconfident too. That's why they were saying, Lord, we'll never desert you. We'll never deny you. Oh, Lord, listen, we are the, we're the men. You can count on us. Sometimes we Christians get a little bit overconfident too. Oh, yeah, man, I'm a Baptist. I go to church every Sunday, you know. <laughs> I, I pray. I don't have to worry about the devil. I don't have to worry. I, I can handle any situation. Just, well, I think I'll go into this bar and witness here. Have a few cold ones so I can blend in, you know, and just, you know, I, I can handle this. We drop our guard. All of a sudden, Satan's got us where he wants us. The disciples also lacked in spiritual discernment. In hindsight, they could see that night. Looking back, I believe Matthew and, and, and Mark, I believe all those guys could look back in hindsight, Luke, and say, oh man, yeah. We, we could see what was going on. We, now we understand. But at the time, they were unaware of the depth of their master's struggle. They didn't understand the spiritual warfare that was going on between the, 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 the Son of God and the enemy of the kingdom of God. They didn't understand the weight of what Jesus was bearing as He was looking ahead to the cross and looking ahead to being separated from God. They couldn't understand that. They didn't have the spiritual discernment. They missed a golden opportunity to be able to be there and pray with God, with the Lord and, and to, 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 to observe and to make themselves ready so that they wouldn't be vulnerable. And boy, were they needed in just a few minutes. The clock was ticking and the whole drama uh, scenario was being played out. They didn't know that just over the hill... One of their own, Judas, was, was rounding up the troops and a whole mob was getting ready. They had their torches, they had their swords, they had their clubs. Oh, listen, thousands of them were marching on their way to that God. They, didn't, they were oblivious. And I wonder today, are we as vigilant as the church as we need to be? Congregation... And those of you that are here, you're members of another church, let me tell you something. Constantly, you need to be praying for your spiritual leaders. I promise you that there's not a day that goes by that there's not spiritual warfare going on. And you need to watch and you need to pray and you need to, 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 to lift us up to the Lord in prayer as we are encountering intense trials and tribulations. And listen, not only that, pray for yourself that you might also be vigilant. They were unaware to even detect the depth of the struggle that the Master was going through. They were unaware, they were unable to carry out their Master's instructions. Jesus said, watch and pray. Be vigilant. Stay on guard. Be aware. And be in prayer. And finally, against this night, we see that this was actually the dawn of the world's darkest day. As midnight turned and Jesus and His disciples were there in the garden, as I said, there were other things that were going on. Let me just take you back to verse 43. 
And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them again, went away, and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. What? Father, if there's any way this cup can pass from my lips, please let it be. But not my will, your will. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand right now. And the Son of Man, talking about Himself, is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus knew exactly where Judas was. He knew exactly who was headed His way. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He says, guys, verse 46, He says, rise, let's go. It's happening. It's now. The darkest day in human history is about to dawn. Good Friday Somewhat a misnomer because it was anything but good for the sinless Son of God. What Jesus would experience beginning that point, when He steps out of the Garden of Gethsemane and, and He encounters the group. Listen, this was a, a, a dark day. Let's look in verse 47. And while He was still speaking, even while He was still speaking to His disciples, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, now, it's interesting that the Gospel writers still refer to Judas as one of the twelve. They don't speak derogatorily of him. They don't bash him. They don't say, Judas, the awful traitor of the centuries. No, they still refer to him because I think they're all shocked and horrified. It was one of us who sold him for 30 measly pieces of silver. It was one of us who betrayed him. Well, anyway, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from, from the chief priest and elders of the people. So it's a whole mob. Now his betrayer had given, him, given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Then immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. That takes a lot of gall, doesn't it? You getting ready to sell somebody out to be tortured, executed, Hey, Jesus! And this customary for men to kiss men back then. I know we Baptists being a little squeamish about that. But it was okay. A light kiss on the each cheek was just a proper greeting to a, to a friend. Someone that you were close to. And Jesus, of course, is reading right through this. In verse 15, Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? In other words, go ahead, spit it out. You know what you're here to do. I know what you're here to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and, and took Him. You know, let me just stop there for a second because I, I noticed in Luke's Gospel chapter 22, talking about Judas, Luke's Gospel chapter 22, in verse 48, when Judas encountered Jesus there, it says, But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Just helping Judas to understand the significance of, of his actions. Judas, you realize what you're doing here? I want to make a clarification on a statement I made in my previous message when Judas was injured by Satan and he went to betray Jesus and sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I made the statement, you know, I didn't mean for it to come out this way, where I said Judas was in control. Folks, that's not right. God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Sovereign God was in control. He always has been in control, and He always will be in control. So none of this was out of God's control. But what I wanted you to see 
Yes, God was sovereignly foreordaining. He knew from the beginning of the dawning of history exactly what Judas was going to do. But still, Judas makes the decision. You see what Jesus is saying? Judas, you realize the decision you just made? You, you're betraying the Son of God. Consequences. Now, even though God is sovereignly foreordained that Judas would be the one who betray Him, Judas, by his own volition, chose still to betray Christ and he suffered the consequences. It's interesting. You know, there are a number of extra biblical books out there, the Apocrypha and all that, you know, that, that come up around the tradition of the, the Scriptures that, that are not biblical, they're not, they're not truly Scripture, but they're just stories, interesting stories that you hear people were telling around the time of Christ. There are stories that were circulated about Judas. That Judas, after he betrayed Jesus, went home to see his wife, and, uh, and he's remorseful now. And in that story, you know, Judas tells his wife, says, I, I, I've done a horrible thing. I've betrayed the Son of God, an innocent man. He, you know, and, and, and I'm afraid now because he's told us he's going to rise up from the dead. And he'll surely take vengeance on me. Now remember, this is extra biblical, it's not scripture, but I just thought it was interesting, the tra- tra- traditions that were going around. And Judas' wife was cooking a chicken at the time. <laughs> they may have been Baptists, but anyway. She was, she was cooking the chicken, and she said to Judas, Oh, listen, this chicken will come up out of the fire and crow before Jesus will ever be raised from the dead, you know? And of course, you know how the story goes. The chicken came up out of the fire and crowed. But that is extra biblical. People are just, all kinds of stories about Judas because he's such a shady character. And people try and say, oh man, what kind of a guy was he? But that was one of them. Back to the task at hand here. He, <laughs> Judas has made this decision. Jesus is betrayed by one of his own disciples. Judas made this decision. He's apprehended by a murderous and cowardly mob. I think it's interesting when we go back to Matthew 26 and we look how Jesus is greeting the crowd. In verse 51, it says, And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. One of his disciples had a little sword tucked away there. And when he saw the mob getting ready to grab Jesus, he impulsively grabs that sword out and whack! Impulsive. If you were just guessing, which disciple would you say probably was the one that whacked the ear off of the servant? Peter, right? Yeah, that's what John says. John didn't mind. That's an interesting thing. John didn't mind blabbing on Peter. You know? Yeah, Peter grabs out a sword and he goes to cut the head off of the servant of the high priest. But remember, Peter is not a swordsman. He's not a soldier. He's a what? A fisherman. We fishermen know how to catch fish, but we're not good with swords. So he goes to whack off the man's head and all he gets is an ear. Luke, the compassionate physician, goes on to describe how Jesus... Now this is our Christ. This is our Lord. In the midst of all the hubbub, he's telling Peter, Peter, put that sword up! You know, you know and, and G, Luke says, Jesus reaches down and takes the ear and heals the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Even in the midst of the, facing a, a, a murderous, cowardous mob, Jesus has compassion to heal. And so, 
I want you to see what Jesus says there in verse 52. Jesus said to him, talking to Peter, Put your sword in its place, for all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Peter, you keep that up, you're going to get everybody killed. Put that sword away. But look what Jesus said also. Folks, I want you to understand. If you don't understand much of what I'm telling you today, Jesus was still in control. Jesus was still the Son of God. Jesus is still the sovereign ruler of the universe and what he tells his, uh, Peter, he says, or do you, in verse 53, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and He will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, do you think I'm helpless? Do you think I'm really a victim here? I mean, in John's Gospel, Jesus actually goes out to greet him. Who do you see? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am Yahweh, the power of His authority. Just Him speaking. It says it knocked the whole crowd down. Soldiers and everybody. Oh no, He wasn't. He said, Peter, don't you realize that all I have to do is say, Daddy, angels. And He says, my Father will dispatch 12 legions. If there's 6,000 angels in one legion, that's about 72,000 angels. Whew! I think it would change the scenario a little bit. The odds are automatically changed. Listen, don't underestimate the power of Christ. The power of angels. One angel, the Bible tells us back in 2 Kings, one angel God sent down and slew 185,000 Assyrians. If one angel can do that, how many do you think 72,000 angels could? Jesus is making a point to His disciples. He says, listen, I'm not a helpless little victim here. I'm doing what the Father has sent me to do. Put that sword up. That's what I would tell the deacons if they were trying to defend me. Put those swords up. Man, you're going to hurt somebody. (laughs) I think one of the most hurtful parts of this dark day at this point comes at the end of this. In verse 55, in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, He says, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. He says, You bunch of cowards. I was right there in public every day. You could have easily taken me. But you wait to come like a slithering snake in the darkness, the cloud of darkness. You come to, to, to arrest me. Unarmed as I am. He's... But it says all this was done that the Scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. And he knew exactly what he was talking about. He says, look, all of this is happening because I'm allowing it to happen. Because my Father has foreordained it to happen. And here comes the very hurtful, hurtful part. Look at the end of verse 56. Then all the disciples forsook Him and fled. How many is all? All! There are... Eleven left. Guess how many ran away? Eleven. You see the picture? In the darkness of the night, in the darkness of the moment, when the powers of evil have been ramped up, Satan is crowing like a rooster. There he stands. Alone. Jesus. The Son of Light. The Son of Righteousness. Against all the evil of the world. But He knew that's the way it would be. When He came into this world, as we saw at the very beginning of Matthew, and was born as a little baby in a manger in Bethlehem, He knew it was Him against 
the world. And our irony is, He has come to save the world. I just wonder, in the midst of fiery trials, in times when you have opportunities to take a bold stand with Jesus, you know something? Jesus will never ask you to stand alone. You won't have to do what He did. Because even if there's no other people around you, He is with you. Didn't He say, I'll never leave you nor forsake you? Listen, you never, ever stand alone. If your whole family deserts you because you're standing on the principles of the Bible and God's Word. If all your friends desert you just because you choose to be faithful to the teachings of the Word of God. Listen, if everybody you love and care about deserts you, you stand on the Word of God. You trust in the Word of God. You look to the Lord God Almighty and know that you don't stand alone. And the victory is always yours in Christ. A lot of lessons to be learned. And we're just getting started on this darkest day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so indebted to You. When we consider, Lord, our sinfulness, our wretched unworthiness, Lord, how dare we speak arrogantly about Peter and James and John and the other disciples, or even Judas, When there is within our flesh nature, Lord, the potential to do all of that. And Lord, we'd have to admit that there have been some times where you you have told us by your Spirit, in your Word, be vigilant. Stand firm through this trial. And we've been lulled asleep by our flesh nature or by the temptations of the world. Oh Lord, might we learn a valuable lesson about how we ought to live as the followers of Christ in this evil world where Satan still runs free. Lord, help us to be vigilant, sober, alert, and always in prayer. Oh God, help us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be fruitful in our lives for the cause of Your kingdom. And Lord, we thank You If there's anyone here today that has not seized upon this golden opportunity and this great gift of salvation made possible by faith, by the grace of God, Lord, I pray that today Your Holy Spirit would just draw them to Your grace. Give them the faith to believe in Jesus and to profess their faith in Him and to confess their sins and to be saved. That they may reap the benefits of this great and glorious relationship we call salvation. Lord, may Christians be encouraged and may this church be made stronger through the example You gave us even there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, as we have our time of commitment here, I pray that You'll speak to hearts. I pray that Your Word will continue to touch us where we need to be touched. Lord, I pray that the points of this message will endear us to You. As we see our Savior, our Savior, Jesus, falling on His face under the crushing weight of that trial. Why? Because He loves us. He did that for us. Oh God, may we look upon our Savior, Jesus Christ, and proclaim, Oh Lord, how I love You. And commit ourselves to You. 
Help us, Lord, to understand all that You want us to understand out of these passages of Your Word. And may Your will be done. Not ours, but Your will be done. We surrender our will to You. Your will. And we thank You for this opportunity of decision. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.